So we're going to look at some history of uh, prophets from the Bible, talk about it from other cultures, other cultural perspectives as well. Of, uh, I suppose kind of like a series that I'm going to be doing um, where I'm taking what I'm calling paranormal or supernatural phenomena out of its strictly Christian religious context to see if we can find applications for it today. So that's what we'll be talking about. If you're watching by replay, uh, let me know in the comments by just hitting hashtag replay. And if you're jumping on, let me know. Um, looks like it's going good. So how's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's doing well, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Again, thank you for taking time to uh, spend with me on this topic. So let's uh, let's jump into this. Of course, my background as a pastor and as a Christian, as a believer, was being charismatic. Uh, and for those of you that are not familiar with that, the charismatic tradition <clears throat> is a tradition of Christianity, a version of Christianity, if you will, that believes in the modern day operation and application and use of spiritual gifts. If you are interested biblically in that, you can look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Those chapters can be a little bit confusing, especially when it gets into a phenomenon known as speaking in tongues which is the Greek word glossolalia. Um, we'll get into that at some point. But one of the things that we were part of for a while was this movement that was called the prophetic movement. Um, Bethel Church in Reading is probably the most well-known modern expression <laughs> of the prophetic movement. <clears throat> uh, back in the 90s, it was the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship the Toronto blessing, all of that. They got deeply into this thing of the gift of prophecy. And so we were heavily into that. I was recognized as a prophet in those circles. And, and so what is, what does that mean? So this was a movement where people were either identified or taught to uh, tap into what we believe back then was the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit, visions or dreams from the Holy Spirit, and give words to people from the Lord about their lives. They weren't always predictive. Um, in fact, they often weren't predictive. Oftentimes it was just encouragement. It was just building someone up. It was giving them affirmation. But the belief was, and, and this is the basically the definition of a prophet, the belief was that we were tapping into the mind of God, that we were tapping into the mind of the Holy Spirit, that we were speaking forth words that were the words of the Creator God, that were the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that were coming through us as a vehicle and as a vessel to the person or to the group, to the congregation, whatever the case may be. And so it would take many different forms. Uh, in the older Pentecostal forms, people would speak in first person. So it would be, thus saith the Lord, your God, I have chosen you for this purpose to go out and do great exploits. <laughs> or I have called you to be my people and to worship me. And so you're speaking first person. It got a little bit more refined, I think, uh, in the later Movements coming through some of the vineyard movement, some of the, like I said, the Toronto airport Christian fellowship movement, and then of course Bethel. And I'm just trying to give you examples out there, uh, to give you an idea for those of you that didn't experience this or didn't know about this, or this sounds a little weird and far out to you. Um, it's, it's out there. <laughs> uh, and a lot of these guys were the ones in 2020, 2019, nah, 2020 with the whole, election fiasco that we had out there that were predicting and prophesying, uh, giving predictive words that Donald Trump would be reelected in 2020. Of course, he wasn't. When that happened, they doubled down and said the election would be overturned. Some of them even gave dates for that. Paula White, if you remember her, uh, she definitely was in that prophetic vein. Uh, other guys and people that were out there 
that got some level of prominence. And I know in a lot of my audience, <clears throat> a lot of people that are watching this and listening to this, you already have some reference point for what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a prophet. So from strictly a biblical sense, the sense of the Abrahamic religions, the idea was that the Lord God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the one true supreme creator God, the only God, would tap people on the shoulder <laughs> and speak to them uh, in their thoughts, speak to them in their, like I said, their dreams, speak to them in visions, and you would be getting direct knowledge of what the mind of Yahweh was, what the mind of Jesus was, and then you'd be speaking to people or groups. So it wasn't always predictive. That It didn't have to be a predictive word to be a prophecy. It just had to be a presentation that said this thought, this idea, these words, this information is coming directly from God himself, coming directly from Jesus himself to the other person. So I'm sure some of you are sitting there saying, Aaron, I thought you deconstructed. I thought you got away from all of that. You know, what have you been telling us for the last three years? How in the world could you talk about prophecy and prophets and be defining it the way you're defining it at the beginning of this presentation and ask, even ask the question, is there a place or a function for modern day prophets? So just stay with me. One of the things I want to emphasize over and over and over again is when we're dealing with supernatural, what I call supernatural, I'm comfortable with the term. I know some people don't like it, um, but I'm trying to communicate. So if you prefer paranormal, if you prefer whatever, you might think it's all a, a, just a con job or stupid or foolish people believe in that or whatever. But when we're dealing with paranormal topics, when we're dealing with things that phenomena that people experience and they experience it as coming from another world, another place, another dimension. In other words, outside of the normal consciousness of everyday life, the normal operation of communication and things like that, we don't really have good scientific ways to measure that. And I've gone over this and I don't want to keep belaboring the issues here and the limitations and the re reductionism of materialistic scientific worldviews. So we have to think differently about it because we don't have ways to measure this or understand it in terms of cause and effect that can be reproducible in a laboratory setting, for example. Then we have to think in a more comparative way. And here's what I mean by that. Um, so what I'm trying to do is give validation to supernatural paranormal experiences because they are ubiquitous, meaning they are universal to human experience. You can go back as far as you want in uh, time, past generations and things like that, and you'll find examples earliest archaeological digs and whatever of people who had claims to having supernatural experiences or having encounters with beings from other dimensions or what they called the gods, having visions and dreams. You can go back and find people who were oracles. Oracles were people who spoke for the gods. You can find... um Prophets, not just in Israel, just even reading the Bible. There was prophets in every one of those ancient cultures. And the Bible even describes how prophets both in Canaan, the Canaanite prophets, and in Israel would receive their communications. And a lot of these would be through visions, through dreams, through uh, encounters in the heavens or the higher worlds. So what I'm saying is, is when you look at this, from a comparative perspective, or you just look at it and you say, okay, this is something that every culture has had. This is something that people in every time period have claimed and professed. And of course they put their own cultural lens and their own religious 
worldview around what they were experiencing. But if you just look at the experiences themselves, then these are things that human beings have, and not just a few of them. (laughs) If you look at the native people and their wisdom keepers, or their shaman, or their healers, they have these types of often visionary experiences, vision quests, dreams, communications from maybe from a Native American tradition, communications from the great spirit in other indigenous uh, tribal peoples. They might have communication from their ancestors. They might have communication from animal spirits or nature spirits. I know having the opportunity to talk to someone who was from uh, a tribal place in Africa and was raised in that, that the medicine people would go out and they would talk to the plants and they would talk about how the plants would talk to them. So that's a communication that is paranormal. But again, this is something that's ubiquitous. This is something that has been in us as human beings since forever. And so therefore, I think it warrants serious investigation. And it gets on my nerves just a little bit, just like I'm sure it gets on the nerves of some of my friends who are materialists or they are just dogmatically atheist and dogmatically stuck in scientific materialism. We want to be super dismissive of these types of experiences. And when it comes, and this is where colonialism subconsciously gets into their thinking and they don't even realize it because they'll automatically dismiss uh, the experiences of indigenous people who are talking to plants and say, huh, they're just not as enlightened as we are. That that's That's kind of a colonial sort of mindset to just dismiss someone else's culture completely because these things are still, uh, I know I have a lot of Mexican friends that these things are still part of their families. These are still part of their traditions. They still do s- certain, uh, practice certain beliefs or have curanderas or curanderos in their communities that they go to for either plant medicine or some of these other things. And so, Let's just not be dismissive of these types of experiences. So here's what I'm saying. When the Bible talks about a prophet in the Bible getting information from God, it talks about it coming in a vision. It talks about it coming in a dream. It talks about it coming with an impression. The hand of the Lord comes over the person or whatever. Well, if you look into shamanic traditions, they go on spirit journeys, which are visionary journeys or vision quests where they can visit the upper worlds or they can visit the lower worlds or where they're receiving communication, as I said, from animal spirits or from the great spirit or from ancestors. So there's that aspect of that experience. The cultural context and the religious beliefs and the worldviews are completely different, but the phenomena itself and the way the phenomena happens and the way the messages are delivered and the way they are received is very much the same in each culture. We see the same thing in the New Age movement today when we talk about channeling, people who are channeling. So the entire, uh, you know, people that are into the law of one or the raw material, that's channeled material. Um, So uh, the law of one material. So Carla Reichert, uh, laid down, she went into a trance. She believed she was contacted by an alien species or entity known as Ra, and then was able to transfer that information from this unseen complex to the transcribers who were writing the raw material and the law of one material. Um, Seth is another entity that people might be f- familiar with. Um, Abraham Hicks. <laughs> Uh, is another one where, uh, I forget the lady's name. I can't believe I can't remember her name. Um, but anyway, she channels an entity known as Abraham. So it's the same kind of thing. I'm going out into somewhere in an unseen realm, receiving some kind of download of information, and then I'm giving that information out. <clears throat> so, all of that would fit under, if you just study it as phenomena, whether you call it channeling, whether you call it 
uh, shamanic journeys or spirit journeys or vision quests or whether you call it prophetic, the phenomena itself, the experience itself, the structure of the experience, I might be able to say it that way, is identical. Um, there's, so there's a, definitely a pattern that is developed here. So my question would then be, are there people who do have a certain sort of attunement <clears throat> to information that comes to them, but does not come to them through what we call normal waking consciousness or normal, uh, states of consciousness or through normal means? And so there are just some people, uh, I've met several of them that uh, are able to really know things about situations and about people. I've had people contact me. There's no way they can know things about me or about what I was experiencing or about what I was going through. And they would contact me with information that would be in- incredibly accurate. And the timing would be incredibly accurate. Or I would meet people who were seers from the time they were children. In other words, they saw entities. They saw dead people. (laughs) They were able to intuit things that happened in the home that they had no previous knowledge of. Or they would be able to talk to beings that claim to be from other planes. And for a lot of these people that I've met and worked with, it scared them that they had these abilities. It scared them that they had these gifts. And so they shut, they shut them off. They turned them off because <laughs> they, they didn't want to see those things or they didn't want to experience those things or they didn't want to encounter those things. Uh, and then working with some of these people, I can think of a couple off the top of my head and helping them turn back on that seer gift and reconnect and learn how to manage it and learn how to work with that. And then they would be able to really transfer information or give people information that would really be helpful for them. Uh, I see that Jeanette's on this morning, and I remember um, she was going through a time where she was unemployed and she was applying to various different places. And a lady in our church who was very gifted in this, was praying for her and she saw the logo of a certain business. And since I didn't ask Jeanette for permission to share this ahead of time, I'm going to keep it vague, but it was very specific. It was a specific business in town. And she said, have you tried applying here? Well, unbeknownst to this person, Jeanette had worked previously for that company and um, didn't have the most pleasant experience and they had parted ways and this was years ago. And so that was one of the places that was completely off of her list to go apply. And so she followed the word of the Lord at that time. And she went and put in the application and got the job and worked there for a number of years and had a pleasant experience and met some really great people while she was working there. So those are the types of examples that I'm talking about. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on about different experiences that we had with that kind of stuff. And I know a lot of you, if you've had experiences like that or you have had gifts like that, if you put that in the comments, that would be awesome if you feel comfortable enough to do that. Um, Jermaine Thomas says, Muhammad had that experience with an angel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Muhammad was a prophet, right? Joseph Smith was a prophet. Again, the messages are all kind of haywire in terms of if we're trying to discern this as foundational grounds for truth to build a religion around, to build a worldview around, then you've got a lot of confusion out there. <laughs> but I'm not looking at it from that perspective. I'm looking at it from the perspective of you know, I wonder if, if, <laughs> no, I'm going to let that go. Um, but if you look at it from the perspective of just the phenomena itself, that's what I'm talking about. Just the phenomena itself, not the worldview, not the religion, not the dogmas, 
but the phenomenon of people receiving messages from in their minds or from other planes, other dimensions, other realities, other beings, then that would all fit under this framework that I'm using of prophets. And so in that sense, are there modern day prophets or what can be the role or the function? So in other words, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying we don't have to throw out everything just because we deconstruct from certain aspects of our faith or we deconstruct from certain aspects of our worldview or our belief system. <clears throat> Daryl says those experiences are personal and should primarily stay personal. When we try to extrapolate it to a corporate reality or dogma, then it gets crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, really good point, Daryl. Um, so anyway, so I'm asking the question, you know, what could be the place, if you will, of a modern day prophet? God, I'm just really disorganized today. Um, cause I had something I was going to look at so I could give you the scriptural references, but, um, I want to look at one prophet in particular, which is the prophet Jeremiah, because I find Jeremiah to be very interesting. So not going to be able to give you the Bible references. I don't think with this group that that's super important. I don't think you're too hung up on that. You know, where is the chapter and verse? But I will tell you uh, that historians and Bible scholars tell us that the Old Testament as we have it today <clears throat> emerged sometime, I think I want to say five or 600 years BC before Christ. And again, I left my notes somewhere. <coughs> I thought I had them with me before I jumped on, but Hey, <laughs> I'm still a work in progress, <clears throat> but I want to say five or 600 years BC, but definitely during the reign of King Josiah. So some things that um, historians and Bible scholars can't, Establish from history cannot establish from history is the uh, enslavement of the Israelites during the Egyptian dynasties. There's nothing in the Egyptian records that indicate that the exodus of the Egyptians, a person called Moses. There's no archaeological evidence. There is no historical record evidence. Uh, there's no hieroglyphs. There's no commentary from other civilizations that existed at the time where we have historical records from those specific uh, civilizations. And in fact, all of the historical evidence points to the opposite. In other words, not only because you can't say like I, I hear people say all the time, well, Jesus never existed because there's no evidence that he ever existed. Well, that's a logical fallacy. That's a critical thinking error. Um, he may or may not have existed, but to say he didn't exist because there's no evidence is to fall into the logical fallacy that the absence of evidence is the same as evidence of absence. The absence of evidence is the same as the evidence of absence. And so uh, a clear way to think and stay out of that logical fallacy is to say that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So, in other words, a person can't say Jesus didn't exist because there's no historical proof that he existed. That's a logical fallacy. So what I'm saying is it, when it comes to the conquering of the Canaans, the Canaanites, when it comes to the Exodus, the Egyptians drowning in the Red Sea, uh, this person, Moses, all that stuff, not only do we have an absence of evidence that any of that happened or occurred outside of the biblical record itself, there is also evidence to indicate that that did not happen. <laughs> there is evidence to indicate that the Israelites were a small band of Canaanites that sort of broke off into their own group. So purpose of this video is not to go into all of that. There's tons of videos out there on that and information out there on that. So it's not just the absence of evidence, but it's evidence to the contrary that suggests that the biblical narrative up until about the time of King Josiah um, is embellished um, and potentially false. <laughs> uh, so I don't know what that does to the Abrahamic religions in general. But anyway, I'm digressing. Get back to the topic. 
<clears throat> so when it comes to King Josiah, who was one of David's kids, uh, then the historical record seems to pretty much line up and become accurate. Now, of course, the Bible has its own story to tell, but at least there's historical and archaeological evidence that these people actually existed. So the Bible itself was kind of put together around the reign of King Josiah. And just prior to the Jews being taken into Babylonian captivity and being in Babylonian captivity for 70 years and then being sent out to rebuild their city and their temple. So it's really interesting, interesting, interesting thing about Josiah. It's a very pivotal moment in the biblical narrative that most people miss completely and entirely. And the reason I'm bringing up King Josiah in the context of talking about the role of modern-day prophets is because Jeremiah was prophesying. He began his ministry, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 1, in the 12th year of the reign of King Josiah. So, and also the Bible seems to have been like rediscovered or put together under the reign of King Josiah. So, and there's a very pivotal shift, a very interesting shift that I'll point out to you. And then if you're a Bible nerd like I was, you can go and check this stuff out for yourself. So King Josiah was a child king. He was uh, coronated, I believe, at the age of eight. And he ruled for 31 years over Judah. Now, by this time, the is Israel as a nation, as a people, had split into uh, two specific groups, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Or you had the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, I think, in the north, and you had the other ten tribes in the south. It's been a while since I've looked at all this, so I might have it reversed. But anyway, you get the point. And what Josiah is trying to do is he's trying to consolidate political power over, basically restore the kingdom and consolidate political power in Jerusalem. And so he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, or he sends out officers to go into the temple in Jerusalem to repair it, to patch it up. <laughs> this is how the story goes. Now, remember that the um, story is told by the winners, right? The people in charge, they get to control the narrative. They get to control the story. So Josiah's own scribes are telling his story. So the way they tell the story is that there was a prophecy that Josiah would come as king, that there would be a child king named Josiah that would come, and he would restore the kingdom, and he would purge the land through massive revival. And Now, up until this time, this is what's important, up until this time, now I'll get into that in a minute. So, so the story is that he's going to do that. So he goes and sends people into the temple. Now, again, keeping in mind, this is told by Josiah's scribes. And a female prophetess finds the book of the Lord hidden in the temple. So the priests, apparently, from the time of Moses until the time of Josiah, had apparently hidden the book of the Lord in the temple and kept it away from the people, which I find curious because in the book of the Lord, it says that the priests are there to maintain the teaching. They are there to maintain the book of the Lord. So what I'm saying is prior to the time of Josiah, nobody was following the law of Moses. So if we just give the biblical narrative the benefit of the doubt, It's interesting to me that in the biblical narrative, Moses receives the Torah, what we call the law, Torah in Hebrew, which means the teaching. He receives the teaching, the Ten Commandments, all that stuff. 
And then Joshua leads them into the conquest of Canaan. And then all that time, all that time, nobody's following the teaching (laughs) of Moses. And Moses isn't even mentioned. What's mentioned through that time, the key issue is idol worship, idolatry, or turning away from Jehovah to worship other gods. So in the context of that time period from Moses or the Egyptian captivity and that Moses gets the law until King Josiah, there is no monotheism in the Bible. There is not just one God. There are many other gods. It's even in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And so throughout the judges, the period of the judges, what we discover is that whenever uh, there was a righteous judge, the people would return to worshiping Yahweh. And when they would return to worshiping Yahweh, the blessing would return. And then they would fall away and start to worship and follow other gods. So it's almost like there was one commandment. There, there really wasn't any mention. There were no feasts. There was no Passover celebration. There was nothing of what we think about in terms of Judaism today uh, that existed this entire time. So don't you find that odd? Don't you find that curious? So then from the time after the judges... When, according to the story, the prophet Samuel is born and the Israelites want a king and they anoint Saul as king. And then David comes along later. The entire narrative on what secures the blessing of God for the people or causes judgment to come on the land has nothing to do with the law of Moses and it has nothing to do with the people. It has to do with the behavior of the king. Was the king's heart pure before the Lord? Did the king walk in all of the Lord's ways? Did the king do what was right in the sight of the Lord? And so for generation after generation after generation after generation, if the king was righteous, the land was blessed. If the king was wicked, the land was cursed. So it's as though the people in the land were being blessed for the behavior of the king and they were being punished for the behavior of the king. In fact, in one story, King David is told to number Israel, to count them, to take a census. And he takes a census of the people, and this angers the Lord. (laughs) And so the Lord sends a plague upon the people, and I want to say something like 22,000 people are being killed. And David has to buy uh, a land, uh, a piece of property from one of the landowners, and he has to offer this huge sacrifice to avert the wrath of the Lord. So this is really important. It's the behavior of the king that secures the blessing or it's the behavior of the king that causes them to lose to their enemies or causes drought or causes locusts and stuff like that. It has nothing to do with the people. Then comes this character named Josiah and supposedly the priests find the book of the Lord and bring it to King Josiah, and King Josiah reads it. So this would be the introduction of the Torah. This would be the introduction of the law into the narrative of Israel just prior to them going into Babylonian captivity. So before it was whether or not the people were worshiping the Lord, and then after that it's what the king's doing, and then now the book of the law is being found in the temple and Josiah reads it. So what we traditionally think of is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Some people say it was just the book of Deuteronomy. The Bible itself doesn't say the Bible itself just says the book of the Lord. Definitely Deuteronomy was in there because there's a unique shift that happens because it says that <coughs> Josiah reads the book. He tears his clothes and he goes out <coughs> And he goes into the temple. He pulls out all the articles of worship that were in the temple. Uh, we're told there were Asherahs, which would be the divine goddess or what scholar Margaret Barker calls the lady of the temple. There would be <coughs> probably some sacred trees, probably the candlestick. Uh, when it talks about the sacred trees being pulled out, um, he's, he's tearing all this stuff out because he sees it as evil. He sees it as vile. He sees it as um, uh, something that's displeasing to Jehovah, supposedly. Or <laughs> he's crafting a narrative because he's trying to consolidate power. 
This is also where the feasts come in, the feast of uh, Passover, the feast of Pentecost, tabernacles, all those feasts where they where the Jews were required or the Hebrews were required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. So it used to crack me up with all these Messianic Jews that were keeping the feasts uh, because they were keeping the Torah. But you had to go up to the temple in Jerusalem to keep it. If you didn't go up to the temple in Jerusalem, it misses the point. Again, Josiah is trying to consolidate power. So he's saying there's one place of worship. There's one place where you all can worship. The headquarters, the center of government and authority and God's presence itself is in Jerusalem. And unless you're worshiping in Jerusalem, your worship is illegitimate. Your temple in Samaria is illegitimate, etc. So why is this important? Because then he goes in. And he goes to places that were sacred sites. One of the places he goes to is Bethel, and he tears down the high places in Bethel. Well, just a casual reading of that is going to tell you, well, he, uh, you know, there was some idol-worshipping place, some place that they were doing witchcraft or child sacrifice or something, and uh, he went and destroyed it. Well, actually, um, Bethel was the place that Jacob had built his uh, altar and where the forefathers had gone. To worship. There were sacred trees. Uh, this is common in ancient folk religions. So you can think about the religion of Israel prior to Josiah has nothing to do with obeying the words of a book. It has to do with this sort of private and personal worship that, and a lot of folk magic, um, that would be very similar to what you'd expect to find in the culture, in other cultures of that day. It's not unique or special in any way. So Josiah's getting rid of all of that. So watch what he's doing. He's consolidating political power. He's basically taking away the freedom of religion. He's destroying everything that uh, people cling to and use and hold to as sacred strictly for the consolidation of governmental power. He's saying every other place of worship is illegitimate. Every other place to celebrate the feasts, which they didn't even know they were supposed to celebrate anyway, uh, was illegitimate that they had to come up to Jerusalem. So that's kind of the first power play or the first power move that Josiah makes. Now, just to finish off the narrative, <laughs> the other thing that's so crucial, and you can read about this, I think I want to say in 2 Kings chapter 22. I was going to read it, but again, I don't have my notes. Um, but after Josiah discovers the, the book of the Lord, discovers the book of the Lord, or produces the book of the Lord, who knows. Most Bible scholars think he probably produced it himself. But he reads the book of the law to the people, and the commitment of the king and the people is we will repent for turning away from the ways of the Lord, and we will obey, this is so important, we will obey everything that is written in the book. We will do all the words of the book. We will obey everything that's written in the book. So when the Bible appears, when the historical record and the archaeological record begins to validate uh, the, the biblical stories, at least the existence of the people in those stories, we have the introduction of church and state combined and fundamentalist religion, where it's not a personal thing anymore. It's not about personal encounters or interactions or anything like that anymore. It's we will we will obey the words of this book. And it says they celebrated, uh, I, I think it was under Josiah, but it might have been under Ezra later on, where they celebrated the Passover. I think it was under Ezra, which is later, which comes much later, where they celebrated the Feast of Passover for the first time. So Moses is not a prominent figure. The book of the law is not a prominent figure. And obedience to the words of the book is not prominent until the reign of King Josiah. Now, here's the other thing. From the perspective of fundamentalist religion, Josiah had a massive revival. I want you to put this in the context of Christian white nationalism, or I want you to put this in today's context with what we see on the religious right or from the evangelical communities or from the far right. And I want you to realize that what Josiah is experiencing is exactly what they want. 
for our country, for our nation. So the way the story is told, Josiah gets rid of all the places of worship. He consolidates power in Jerusalem, and he gets the people to obey the words of the book, and it's national. The whole nation comes under the rule of law of the words of the book. The whole nation repents and turns to the Lord. From the evangelical perspective, from the religious right perspective, this is the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This is the elimination of the LGBTQ TIA plus community. This is, uh, the Ten Commandments being read in school and prayers being prayer to Jesus and in Jesus name being restored in government halls and in, uh, over every setting in America, every public institution being ruled by the words of the book being, uh, prayers being said and made in Jesus name. Uh, all throughout the government. I mean, this this would give the Pentecostals the shakes, man. This would make them leap and jump and shout and run and spit and fall down and and dance and you, you know what I'm saying. And this is what Josiah is experiencing, or this is what the people are experiencing during the reign of King Josiah. Now, this is where Jeremiah comes in, because God calls Jeremiah in the twelfth year of King Josiah's reign. And he tells them, he tells Jeremiah to basically rebuke the entire nation, the king, everybody, because they have rejected the word of the Lord. Now, this is where I need to get into the weeds but but he wasn't accepted. His message wasn't accepted. And there were other prophets, Hananiah, for example, who had a completely different prophecies than Jeremiah. There was a competing vision between the two prophets within Israel. Now, here's what's so interesting. The other major thing, and this is really important, that King Josiah did, and this was strategic and this was wise, he shifted the blame from the kings to the people. For the first time ever, go check it out in your Bible. During the period of the judges, I'm just going to say it again, during the period of the judges, if they worshipped Yahweh, the land was blessed. If they turned away from Yahweh, the land was cursed. During the kings, if the king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the land was blessed, the people were blessed, they won victories. If the king did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, destruction came upon the land. But now under Josiah, because Babylon is getting ready to invade Jerusalem, so now under King Josiah, no, it has nothing to do with the king. Nothing to do with the king at all. It has to do with the people and whether or not the people are obeying the words of the law. So if you go into the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28 says, if you hear, if my people hearken, if they hear, if they obey the words of the law, then I will make you the head and not the tail. I'll make you above and not beneath. I'll make you the lender and not the borrower. You'll be blessed coming in and blessed going out, blessed in the city, blessed in the field, blessed in your basket and your storehouse. I'll increase your flocks. I'll increase your silver and your gold. Your enemies will come against you one way. They'll flee before you seven ways. But if you turn, and you as an entire nation and people, you do not obey the words of the law that are written in this book. Then in cursing, I will curse you. <laughs> I will curse your land. I will curse your cattle. I will curse your children. I will curse you with famine and with locusts. Your enemies will come uh, uh, against you and they will devour you and they will destroy you and they will conquer you. So now the responsibility is completely off the plate of the king. The responsibility is now on the plate of the people and whether or not the people are obeying the words of the law, whether or not the people are obeying the book. Now, what's interesting about this whole sort of sham is that Jeremiah begins to prophesy. 
Now, here's the thing. Jeremiah begins to prophesy and say, you will not be victorious against Babylon when they come against you. You will not have victory against Babylon. Babylon will come in and defeat you. Babylon will come in and destroy the temple. Babylon, the Babylonians will come in and destroy uh, the city, and they will carry off your sons and daughters into captivity and take them back to Babylon. The other prophets of the day were saying, no, we have done right in the sight of the Lord. King Josiah has been chosen by the Lord. We've had massive national revival that has been unprecedented in the history of Israel, that's never been seen before. So the Lord will fight for Jerusalem. The Lord will fight for the temple. And we will have victory and we will have peace. So you've got these competing prophetic paradigms going on. Now, there's an interesting verse, few verses in Deuteronomy chapter 13, where it says that if a, how, how do you know if a prophet's telling you the truth or the prophet's lying? If a prophet tells you that something's going to happen and it comes to pass, then you know that prophet was sent from the Lord. If the prophet tells you something's going to happen and it doesn't come to pass, then you know that prophet wasn't sent to you from the Lord. I guess that's kind of a problem for the all the prophets that were prophesying the return of Donald Trump in 2020, but leave that alone. I think that's in there for a reason. I think that's in there for a reason because... Again, a lot of Jeremiah's opponents were Deuteronomists, people that were writing the book of Deuteronomy. At least two, and this is where I had the biblical references and I don't have my notes, but if you're interested, I'll put them in the comments or something. Or I'll come back and do a more detailed video if I get enough requests for it. So, um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, he had two or three prophecies that didn't come to pass. He prophesied, I think, in one place, the defeat of the Assyrians and the destruction of Assyria, and that never happened. He prophesied in another place, I think, that a king would be victorious and the king died. So he's missing it with his prophecies. So I want you to think about this. Here's Jeremiah, who's missing it with his prophecies, who's telling the people this way of life that you have, this system that you have, this government that you have, it's going to be completely destroyed. The Babylonians are going to come in and defeat you and carry you off into captivity. Oh, but wait a minute. That doesn't match what's written in the book. I want to kind of give you a modern-day context for those of you that come out of this stuff. Not only is Jeremiah's prophecies, a couple of them, not been accurate, but he's actually speaking contrary to what's found in the book of Deuteronomy. That if the people are obedient, if the people repent, if the if people mend their ways, if they follow the book and all the words of the book of the law, then they'll secure blessing, they'll secure victory against their enemies. And yet historically we know that Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, destroys the city, captures the people, takes them back into Babylonian captivity. Now, when they get out of Babylonian captivity... This is when, once again, the book of the law, they go back after 70 years of being in Babylon, Cyrus, King Cyrus gives a decree to let them go back and build, rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. And, and again, they start with the book of the law. They say, we've got to obey everything that's in this book. So the trajectory coming into the New Testament is that eventually... Israel is going to be established as the top nation in the world again, the head and not the tail. So the people within the various thought of Second Temple Judaism, for the most part, one of the prevailing thoughts among a lot of the Jewish people then, as far as I understand it from Bible scholars, was that the nation of Israel was still in exile. Even though they were back in their homeland, they were being occupied by the Romans, they didn't have their sovereignty as a nation. And so the belief from at least what we can understand of the Pharisaical tribe or group was that we have to make sure that we get this obedience to the law 
in perfect order. So that's why they started arguing about what's okay to do on the Sabbath and what's not okay to do on the Sabbath. Is it okay to eat grain or not eat grain? So that you, you kind of begin to get the context for at least the way the story in the New Testament is being told. But let me come back to the place of the prophet. Let me come back to the place of the prophet. Eventually, ultimately, in the story, Jeremiah's prophecy was correct. And all the other prophets who were saying, no, this is wrong, was not correct. Even the words in the book was not correct, because you can go read it for yourself. Again, I want to emphasize, put this in a modern-day context. We've been told my entire life by the evangelicals and the religious right that tragedies happen because of sin in America. When 9-11 happened, Pat Robertson goes out on TV, Jerry Falwell and some others, and say this is because of rampant homosexuality, this is because of abortion, and God has lifted his hedge of protection off of America. Uh, when Hurricane Katrina happened, they came out and told us it was because of some foreign policy that was made against Israel in their conflict with the Palestinians. And so we've been told if we're going to be great as a nation, if we're going to have God's blessing on our economy, if we're going to be protected from all these evils, then we need to nationally conform. We need to have this national revival where everybody comes under the rule of the words of the book. And if that happens, then we'll be blessed. But yet our first example of that from the book itself is that that didn't happen. Oh, and by the way, King Josiah didn't go, like all the other kings that did right in the sight of the Lord, it said they went to sleep with their fathers in peace. It's pretty much how the narrative goes. If they did wrong, they were killed in battle. By the way, Josiah, King Josiah, died in battle. So even though the narrative was, if we do this, blessing's going to be secured and this is all going to happen, it didn't happen that way. What Jeremiah said was going to happen is what happened. So when I look at this, I'm going to step back and reframe this. One of the roles, sort of a Jeremiah role of a prophet, if you will, is the ability to see beyond or see a future that other people don't see. That, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you're at with this, is speaking outside the actual worldview and paradigm itself. The way of seeing the world. Um, so the prophets that were prophesying against Jeremiah's prophecies, that were countering him, that were persecuting him, that were wanting him killed, they were giving a future forecast to maintain the system and perpetuate what is, to keep it going. This system is the system. This system is the best system. This system is the way of the Lord. This is the right way. This is the best way. This is the way we've always done it. And their future, their vision of the future is more of the same or an increase of more of the same. So in the case of those evangelical prophets, it's um, churches are going to grow. Um, Christ is going to be expanded. The rule of Christ and the rule of the book of the law is going to be established in government. Our faith is the only faith. Our way is the only way. Our way is the best way. And we just want more of the same. So when they look into the future, when they're having visions or dreams or prophecies or hearing something, they are stuck in the propagation or promotion of their existing structures and systems and worldviews. The Jeremiah-type prophet comes from outside of that perspective and speaks to the actual paradigm itself. God's original mandate in the story to Jeremiah was to root out, pluck up, tear down, and destroy, and to build and to plant. So 
Jeremiah is speaking to the system and he's saying, no, this is not the way forward. <laughs> this is not the future for us. This system is going to collapse. You're going to find yourself in a completely different environment. You're going to find yourself in a completely different future. You're going to find yourself in a place that is foreign to you and in a place that you don't like. And you're going to have to learn how to adapt to it. And you're going to have to learn how to be at peace with it. Everybody loves to quote Jeremiah 29:11, And this is where I'll close. Everybody loves to quote Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. They take it completely out of context. God is speaking that to the nation of Israel about going into Babylon. Because in the next verse, he says, go into the city and make peace with the city, and in there you shall prosper. So in other words, what Jeremiah is saying is, you're going to prosper, you're going to do fine, you're going to be okay, but it's going to be totally different than you think it's going to be, and it's going to be in a way that's totally different than what you're expecting to experience. So here's my point. Is it possible, and I'm just proffering this. Is it possible that there is a role and a function for prophets in this day and age who are able to think outside the box, who are able to perceive of things in the future that are completely other than the systems that we have had? So in the deconstruction movement, it's sort of a prophetic movement from that perspective because it's people with access to more information. Biblical scholarship is more readily available. Podcasts, YouTube, channels like this where information is being put out there. It's more available to people. And so people are sort of waking up. They're sort of having this awakening experience and they're saying, wait a minute, there are a lot of problems here. There are a lot of problems with theocracy. I think it was Jermaine had posted in the comments. I think I saw him uh, talking about theocracy. Um, this is not uh, a future that's going to be good for everybody. Um, there are problems with this paradigm. There's problems with the historicity of it. There's problems with the logic of it. We're, we're speaking. So, so what I'm saying is, is that from the perspective of Jeremiah, there is a prophetic function that not from a self-righteous place, not from a place that says, Hey, I know more and I'm better than you. And I have the word of the Lord. I'm, I'm not even saying this is the word of the Lord, nothing like that at all. I'm just looking at the phenomena again, of the function of someone who was declaring a future that had not been arrived at yet, that could not be seen by the people of the day, that was going to be completely other than the systems and the structures uh, of, of government and lifestyle and whatever that they were living in. And so I think we're at that kind of time period where... <clears throat> To quote another verse from the Bible in Hebrews chapter 12, everything that can be shaken is being shaken. And I think that our systems from the past are not working. And I don't think they will continue to work. And I think people will continue to try to cling to those things. People will try to cling to doctrines like hell and try to cling to um, doctrines like the <clears throat> inerrancy of the Bible and stuff like that. Because they want, they see a future <clears throat> of, you know, the church is filled. <clears throat> Excuse me. The church is filled and, like I said, you know, government being infiltrated with all this religious stuff. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's what I'm putting out there. So to frame it and answer the question, I think that we're, we'll never be, I think that communication with <clears throat> either actual unseen entities and information that is channeled to a person. person contacts the unseen world and speaks. A person has the ability to intuit and no knowledge they shouldn't be able to know. That's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> that's going to continue. Hopefully, that's going to increase as people become liberated into their own spiritual paths into their own truth. And I know that's going to be messy and that's going to be difficult. And there's a lot of problems with that. I get it. Um, 
And for sure that there is. All I'm saying is that is staying with us. That's remaining with us. And so if you're a person out there and you're a seer, you're a person out there and you're intuitive, you're a person out there and you're psychic or whatever, um, I think those are abilities that we all have. <clears throat> it's just that some people tap into them more naturally, just like some people tap into <clears throat> musical gifting more naturally or athletic gifting more naturally, whatever, smarter math, better reading, whatever. Some people are just more inclined to that, don't all have that ability. You can awaken that ability within you, I'm convinced. <clears throat> That's not going away. So in that sense, yes, you don't have to throw away your spiritual gifts. You don't have to throw away your pursuit of spiritual things and those experiences and those phenomena, they are very valid. If they're valid if for no other reason, they're valid because you ain't the only person that's ever had it. <laughs> and, yeah, there's a lot of learning and, and wisdom and guidance that can help you in those arenas. That's not going away. So that can be considered a modern-day function of a prophet. And then early adopters outside-of-the-box thinkers, people who are putting out information that is tearing down systems from a place of integrity, from a place of integrity, not from a place of being mean-spirited or just needing to be right, then we're just perpetuating the same old religious crap. But from the perspective of this was my journey and I want to share it with you, these are problems that I saw or experienced, and these are some solutions and answers that I have. And I want to offer those to the world. I want to offer those solutions. I want to offer those answers. These were questions that I had, and I want to answer those questions and offer that to the world. See? Not saying you have to believe this. Your path has to be the same as mine. So in that sense, this new group of prophets, if we want to call them that, this new group of prophets are a prophets, are prophets who are speaking forth their truth who understand that because consciousness, the one mind, the one consciousness is divided up into a multiplicity of viewpoints that we call ego, that we call our self, that we call our mind or our perspective or our view, because of the vast array of that, because of the diversity of that, then we realize that truth is not as solid or as concrete or as immutable and unchangeable or as thesis antithesis as we want it to be. That's just another paradigm that's going to have to give way that will give way. Fortunately or unfortunately, the way the trajectory, the trajectory that we're on in the postmodern world. But from that sense, then a company of prophets that have forged a journey or shared a journey or crossed paths with other people that were in similar journey and we each speak our truth and we offer our truth in a loving and compassionate way to the world. And together we have sort of pollination. We have an enrichment of understanding and perspective and life that we pick up from one another as we all sort of escape this matrix of religious groupthink. And so that's why I think <clears throat> anyone in the deconstruction community and deconstruction journey fits the paradigm of the Jeremiah prophet and has a role and has a function as a prophet in these times that has nothing to do with the dogmas of your religious beliefs or the stubbornness of your paradigms, <laughs> group paradigms and groupthink. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Let me just go back and check out some of these comments. Uh, appreciate y'all for commenting. One of these days I'll get good enough at this that I can read the comments and keep my train of thought while they come out. <laughs> Let's see. Steven says, Steve Klassen says, soon the spirit community reality will be the experience of every man. This is returning to our original identity. Great comment. Um, Mike and Alicia are on. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching. Ben says, I'm here. Better late than never. Ben, I hope you're feeling better. 
Daryl uh, Carlson says, so fascinating. So even though we never heard this directly taught within Christianity, these facts went into our minds subconscious. So this worship of power and complete devotion to the source of power is the foundation of fascism, right? Yes. Or it at least makes one blind to fascism when it makes its way into a group. Let's see. I'm trying to see Joe's comment here. Yes to the shaking. Could it be a function of the changing of ages with the procession of the equinoxes? I absolutely believe that. I'm going to come back at some point and do a talk on astrology. And uh, we'll talk about the procession of the equinoxes and the changing of the ages and the similarities between um, what happened in the biblical stories uh, with Jesus and Judaism and what's happening today. So anyway, um, appreciate all everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, uh, night, evening, if you're watching by replay, whatever the case may be. To spend this time with me, let me know in the comments what you think if you want more of this type of stuff or if I got too much into the weeds with the Bible stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, I hope wherever you are, you are blessed. And I will catch you next week.